like it has this infinite potential, but you'd have lots of questions as to knowing how the whole thing functions, what exactly it does. How do you run and operate one of those things? I imagine it's something exactly like that that the first Christians must have felt when they were handed or entrusted with Jesus' church. And they were told, listen, this thing is going to change the world. In fact, the world will never again be the same after this. I know it seems small and unimpressive right now, but I'm telling you, everyone in the world is going to need this. Rich and people who are not rich, educated and people who are not educated, men and women, professionals, people at home, everybody is going to be affected by this thing, right? And if I had all the folks who were a part of Jesus' church throughout history from 65 AD on raise their hands, we'd be in the billions of billions and countless number beyond the stars. But I imagine if it was 65 AD, you'd have some questions. Questions like, what exactly is it? What does it do? What's it supposed to accomplish? How do you organize it? How do you handle it? How is it supposed to operate and run? All kinds of questions about, if we handle this thing rightly, what can this thing accomplish? It's, it's almost like you've got this thing that has potentially infinite potential, but you'd have a host of questions as to knowing how it's run, how it's operated, how it's organized, and what it can do in the world. Now, fortunately, God, the creator of the church, gave us a manual, gave us instructions by which we were to know how it was to be organized, how it was to be structured, how it was to be run, how it was to be operated. He gave us clear instruction on what its mission was and, if handled rightly, what it could accomplish in the world. And there's lots of places in our Bibles, God's word to us, where we could go to glean this instruction and get this information. But the one that we're going to look at over the next few months is the book of 1 Timothy. Now, I'm going to say a bunch about 1 Timothy as background today, but I want to read you to start two verses from the letter known as 1 Timothy. It's 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. You can turn there or hear with me. Here's what it says. I hope to come to you soon. The I there is Paul. We'll talk more about that in a moment. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, so he's going to tell us why I'm writing this letter, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, there's a bunch of stuff you might glean from there. Right, right off the bat, for example, if you're new to all of this, you might hear that he defines church as a household. Maybe you're coming into the room and you've always associated church with a building you go to, an event you take part in, a service you participate in, rather than a family you belong to. And so whatever else he's going to say about what the church is and what it does and what it can accomplish, right off the bat you're told this is not stone, brick and mortar. This is not a place to go to. This is a people to belong to. And then explicitly he says, listen, I'm writing this to you so that you may know how one ought to behave, how one ought to conduct themselves, how life in the church is supposed to look. He's saying, I'm writing the letter of 1 Timothy. The reason you have 1 Timothy in your Bibles is so that we might know what life in Jesus' church looks like, so that we might have a vision for 
what a healthy church is. In fact, the series that we're titled this, what we've called this series, is What is a Healthy Church? And it's got sort of two subdivisions, repairing damage, restoring beauty. And 1 Timothy is all about casting for us a vision of what is a healthy church. All right, Seven Mile Road, hear me. We need this letter. And I don't mean that generally or generically like we need this like any part of the Bible. I'm saying we specifically need specifically this letter specifically. In this time, right now, we need the letter of 1 Timothy. For one, we're a young church. We're a little over three years old, and much of how we operate and run, much of our structure and organization is still being sort of shaped and formed. If you can imagine a three-year-old sort of learning how to walk, that's how this church plant is in many ways. Now, we have taken some good baby steps in the right direction. For example, if you were with us last week, we called another elder, another pastor into the life of the church. That's the right direction in terms of what the scriptures have for what the church is. But in this season specifically, we have more maturing to do. In this season, we want to, for the first time, call members, something we've never formally done at our church So that's another step of maturity. We want to call deacons. What's a deacon? What does a deacon do? Who gets to be a deacon? How do you call a deacon? These are questions that the book of 1 Timothy is going to help us with. And being such a young church that's just getting started, it's wise for us to consider what a healthy church looks like. It's wise for us to learn what God thinks a healthy church is. Some of you are church growers, church goers, right? You've been church goers your whole life. You're professional church goers. You've been going to church from when you were infants. One of the things that's common among church goers is we often talk about what we're looking for in a church. What I want to get out of a church. What do I expect from the church? And yet, despite the fact that we're professional church goers, very often have we ever wondered, what is God looking for? From the church? What does he want to see in the church? What does he expect from the church? And when we ask that question, we rightly realize who cares about our preferences? The question is what has he prescribed, not what do we prefer? What is his vision of the church? What does he call the church to be? And that's the question we want to spend some time asking throughout these coming weeks. Simple questions, questions like, what are we as a church supposed to be about? You're here, you might as well know, what are we supposed to be about? Questions like, how are we to worship? Who are our leaders supposed to be? How are we to relate to one another? How do we handle money? What do we do with sin? All kinds of questions about just how do we run? How do we operate? What does God want from a church like us? Now, all of us, need this book. All of us need 1 Timothy. Like if you're here and you're a Christian, you love Jesus, well then I don't have much convincing to do of you because you're eager to hear anything that Jesus has to say. And if Jesus has something to say about his body, the church, his bride, you're ready with eager ears to hear any wisdom that you might glean from 1 Timothy. Or if you're here and you belong to Seven Mile Road, 
You're committed to Seven Mile Road. You're giving your time to Seven Mile Road, your energy, your sweat, your money to Seven Mile Road, your resources to Seven Mile Road. I think it will be very encouraging for you to hear over the coming months what you're a part of and, and why we are the way that we are and run the way that we do run and believe the things that we do believe. I think it will be encouraging for you to hear how we are earnestly striving to be as closely aligned to God's word in our vision for the church. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, let me talk to you for a second. You might ask yourself, what on earth does this book have to do with me? Right? If you're here and you're not connected to Jesus' church, I mean, very simply maybe even just the idea that the church is not a building or a service or an event to attend might itself be something that God over these next few months wants to broaden your definition of and give you a vision for Jesus' church like you've never had before. I mean, if you're even visiting, it might be helpful for you to know what it is you're a part of. Or, I want you to hear this, maybe you're here and you're sort of wondering how you even stumbled in this morning, and you're not a part of Jesus or his church because you've been burned by the church. How many people do you know like that? How many people do you know who are not a part of Jesus or his church because of a bad church experience, because they've been burnt by the church? That's many. Our missionary Amy said it better than much, much better than I could yesterday on Facebook. So she's got this long post. Let me read you a short uh, a bit of it. She said this, I know so many people who have had a negative church experience or come across a Christian who failed to represent Christ, parentheses, most likely me, and so have labeled the church false. We're all works in progress, and we're all sinners, which means at some point in time, we will all manage to make Christians look bad. And she goes on from there to invite, saying, come even here to an imperfect community of folks rallying around a perfect Christ. But I, I would say, all of us, maybe some of you could personally relate to that, or you certainly know somebody who would fall into that camp. Uh, they want nothing to do with Jesus or his church because they've tried Jesus and his church. And they've been so burnt by that experience, they don't want to come a million miles near. In fact, if we went through some of the experiences they went through being around so-called Christians, we might be in the same place ourselves. That might be where you are this morning. You need First Timothy in order that you might know that there are bad churches, and these bad churches do burn people, both now and then. And so that you might have a vision for what a healthy church is and might even contribute to the important work here of building a healthy church. So there's something here for all of us, for sure. So here's what I want to do today. I want to just get you sort of acquainted with the letter known as 1 Timothy. We're going to be plowing through this book line by line, verse by verse, for the next five months. So what I want to do today is just sort of get your feet wet, sort of survey over the whole book before we dive into its chapters and verses. So all I want to do today is I'm only going to consider three verses or two verses from 1 Timothy, but beyond that, I want to give you the background to this letter and how it came to be in our Bibles, okay? So I'm going to pray, and then I'll tell you the story behind the book of 1 Timothy. Let's pray and ask the Lord for help as we consider his word. 
Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is so rich and so engaging. If we were to give our hearts to it, we would be abundantly blessed. So help us this morning to give our hearts to your word, to give our attention. The rest of this week is going to clamor for our minds and clamor for our hearts and compete with the things of you. Give us enough grace to dedicate these next few minutes to an earnest hearing of your word, to an earnest, honest seeking of you. Even now, to leave our hearts open that the Holy Spirit might actually say something to us, surprise us, engage us in a way that only the Holy Spirit can. For you, Lord, know where each person is and know what they need to hear. So help my words to be faithful and your people's ears and hearts to be faithful as well, that we might preach and hear well, be brought to Jesus. He might receive much glory. In his name we pray. Amen. The man who wrote the book of 1 Timothy in your Bible is a man named Paul. When you first meet Paul, actually, in the Bible, it's in this book of the Bible called Acts in the ninth chapter. And at the time, his name is not Paul. His name is Saul. If you're at church and you're sort of here and you're not really sure about Christianity, you don't really know if you could ever become a Christian, you don't think you could ever take that leap, I want you to know you would be in good company with Saul. If there was anyone in the history of the world on the face of the planet at all times ever who had no interest in becoming a Christian, who didn't want, anywhere, want to be anywhere near a church, it would have been Saul. Saul not only wasn't interested in Christianity, Saul vehemently hated Christianity. Saul thought that Jesus was a phony and an imposter and a joke. He hated Jesus' followers. He thought it was dangerous. He thought that religion was a horrible thing in the world. And so Saul sought with all his might not just to not be a part of Christianity, but to get rid of Christianity. And so when you read through the Bible, you find that Saul was a man who tortured and imprisoned and persecuted and killed Christians. I won't say much more about Saul except that one day Jesus showed up in Saul's life just like he showed up in many of our lives here. Jesus showed up in Saul's life, literally knocked him off his horse, pinned him to the ground, blinded him, and there gave him a new heart, a new calling, a new life, and a new name. And this man Saul becomes forever then from there Paul. And I, I won't say more about it because in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy and verse 12, you don't have to turn there now, Paul gives a moving testimony of his life. So we're going to consider that. And in that section, he gives one of the shortest, most simplest, yet most beautiful explanations of what the gospel is. I cannot wait for us to get to 1 verse 12. For now, let me suffice it to say that this man, Paul, who was once church persecutor, becomes Paul, the church planter. He who had gone from city to city trying to destroy the church was now going from country to country and city to city trying to expand the church, trying to build the church, trying to start new congregations, trying to tell anybody and everybody that he could about Jesus Christ. The Jesus he once hated, he now loved. The Jesus he once despised, he now worshipped. The Jesus he wanted no one to know about, he wanted now everyone to know about. And so he went to every city he could to tell people about Jesus. One of those cities was the city of Ephesus. 
And you read that story in Acts chapter 19. That's where we're going to spend a bulk of our time today. It's going to be on the screen behind me. Otherwise, you can look at it in your Bibles. Acts 19, let me read you the first verse. And this is the city that Paul goes to. It says this, And it happened that while Apollos, Apollos was another disciple of Jesus, not original 12, but another follower. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. When you read the rest of chapter 19 in Acts, it's basically the story of how a church gets planted in the city of Ephesus. Now hear this. Planting a church in Ephesus would have been in a lot of ways very similar to planting a church in Philadelphia. Planting a church there then would have been in a lot of ways sort of what God has done here now. For example, Ephesus was at the time the third largest city in the Roman Empire had about 250,000 people crammed into this metropolitan, cosmopolitan, big city lights city. Our own city of Philadelphia is the second largest city on our side of the country. Moreover, in just our section of the Northeast, we've got about 400,000 people squeezed in here. Not to mention, if you count the rest of the city, you're looking at about 1.5 million people. Not to mention, if you consider the surrounding suburbs and areas that are represented even in our church, you're talking millions of people in or near another cosmopolitan, metropolitan, big lights city like ours. The city of Ephesus also was this hub. It was this central located port city. And so you almost couldn't travel without going through Ephesus. And so Ephesus became this stopping place for people from all over the world who would spend a season of their lives in Ephesus, be introduced to the culture and way of that city before they moved on and went somewhere else. And so that meant that you had sort of this melting pot in Ephesus of all these different cultures and languages and peoples and foods and music and arts and religion. It was this, this place where all of it came together. Some ways, much like even what happens in our city. Our city has the second largest number of colleges and universities. That means that people from all over the world come, even if this is not their home, to spend four or five years here in this city before they move on and often as leaders or influencers of culture wherever else they go. And so in many ways, these cities we're talking about were hugely strategic for the gospel. Right? If you had people from all over the world coming into Ephesus for a season, imagine a healthy church was planted in the city of Ephesus. And imagine you could spend a season of your life there, become a believer, and then take with you the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's exactly what happened. A, a hope that should encourage us even over our own city as we consider what God could do if there were many healthy churches planted in our city. And, and people might come, spend a season of their lives even here, and take the gospel wherever they might go. But the question was, and, and perhaps the question for us would be the same, is can the gospel take root, flourish, thrive, advance, make traction in a city like Ephesus? That's certainly a question even in the deep corners of our heart we would ask about our own region. Is can the gospel really make traction here? take root here, advance here, flourish here, thrive here, go forth and spread from here. You're talking secular, pagan, want nothing to do with Jesus kinds of cities, then and now. 
And so our question is, can a healthy church be planted in soil that's as hard as Ephesus or soil that's as hard as Philadelphia? Well, Acts 19 tells the beautiful story, one story after another, of that exactly happening. If you read Acts 19, what you come to see is this beautiful story of how the gospel takes root in this city. Let me read you the first seven verses. This is what it says. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Let me summarize what's happening. This is the first of a few different stories in Acts 19 of what happens when Paul brings the gospel to the city of Ephesus. And when he first shows up at the city, he finds that there is something that God is doing in the city. Right? It seems like this dead city where the gospel is not going to go forward, and yet he finds some disciples. He finds that they sort of believe. They, they sort of know. Now, they have some significant doctrinal deficiencies. They don't even know that there is such a thing as the Holy Spirit. And so Paul has some work to do here. This, by the way, is how the Pentecostals in the room view the rest of us, right? They're good people. They know a lot, but they just, I wish they knew that there was a Holy Spirit, I know when Dennis is worshiping, this is exactly what he's thinking, which is, do these people know that there is a Holy Spirit? Right? So he gets there, and he goes Dennis on them, or Pentecostal on them, and he says, listen, there is a Holy Spirit. He preaches to them, baptizes them. They get filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak in tongues and prophesy, and Paul immediately knows God's doing something. In the city of Ephesus, of all places, God is actually doing something. And he senses this so much that Paul decides to stay behind. In fact, when you get to verse 9, you find that Paul lingers behind. He basically rents out a hall called Tyrannus Hall. And there, every single day, he began to reason with all who would listen and preach the gospel. He ends up staying there for two years. Listen to verse 10. It says, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. The reason Acts highlights this is, listen, Paul spent two years, so much so that by the time his ministry was done, everybody in that city, Jews and Greeks, that's another way of saying religious people and irreligious people, moral people and immoral people, secular people and and religious people, all these people had heard the word of the Lord because he had stayed there. And, And he even adds this detail of, do you know how long he stayed? In total, Paul ends up staying at the city of Ephesus for three and a half years. That's huge because Paul never stays anywhere that long. Paul's in places for weeks, months, maybe a year, a year and a half, and then he's got other cities to go to. The gospel's got to advance throughout the whole world. He spent three and a half years at Ephesus because of the way the gospel was moving, because of the traction the gospel was getting, because of the roots the gospel was growing in that city. And God was doing one incredible thing after another in the most unexpected of places. 
In fact, when you keep going in verse 11, it says this, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Notice, by the way, how it says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul. That's almost the the text way of saying, I don't want you to mistake this. It's not that Paul was some kind of superpower, amazing person. No, he was just the vehicle by which God was doing extraordinary miracles, these demonstrations of power that the city had never seen. So much so that Paul would be working a long day, he'd wipe his brow with a towel, throw it to the side, and somebody would grab that towel, run it over to the sick person's house, and they'd be healed just by touching it. It was this unbelievable demonstration of power, and everyone started to get wind, and everyone wanted in on the action, so much so that the next story is probably one of the most funniest stories you will read in all the scriptures. Now, I'm not a comedian, so I won't do it justice, but just hear it, okay? It says this in verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, right there itself, you go, what is that, right? Their ministry is to go from city to city as itinerant Jewish exorcists, right? So this is the ancient Ghostbusters. If something's going down in your town, you call the itinerant Jewish exorcists. So then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. So they see what's happening with Paul and they go, we can try that also. Saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I love that, right? You've got these imposters, these counterfeits who want in on Jesus' power without knowing Jesus. And so they figure Paul's doing it. We can do it as well. So they run up to this one demon-possessed man who must have looked like the Hulk. And they say, I adjure you by the Jesus that Paul proclaims, come out. And that demon goes, I know Jesus. I recognize Paul. But who are you? And then he overpowers, one guy overpowers the seven so that they run out of the house with no clothes on. Now, I'm not a fighter, but I know that if I get into a fight, at very minimum, I'm trying to keep my clothes on, right? (laughs) At least I've got to walk out with pants, right? That's got to be your base minimum goal if you get into a fight. These guys left with no underwear on. They were, they were humiliated. They just were pounced on and they run out of the house bloody and naked. By the way, what a compliment to Paul. Did you hear what the demon said? The demon said, I know Jesus. Nobody had to introduce the demonic world to Jesus. He had come. He had died. He had risen again. And everybody in Satan's kingdom knew our time is done. Jesus has come. Nobody had to give a lesson on who Jesus was. I know Jesus. And then he goes, and I recognize Paul. Think of that. That means that this man or these demons had not encountered Paul directly, but there had been chatter enough about Paul that this demon recognized the name. 
I'd say this about Seven Mile Road. I am not looking to get into fights with demons, but I do hope, I do hope there's chatter about us. I do hope that we wouldn't be proved in the end to be a bunch of fakes and frauds and phonies that everybody would say, who are you? Somebody else is talking about Jesus. We know it from them. We recognize them. Who are you? I'm not looking to pick fights with demons, but I am hoping that there's enough impact in what we're doing that there's chatter about Seven Mile Road. Well, word spreads everywhere in this city. Verse 17 says this, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Don't gloss over that. You're talking a city like ours. Imagine it was said, and it became known to all the people in Philadelphia, secular and religious. Everybody heard about Jesus. So much so, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled held high, held in high regard in this city. Nobody was playing anymore. Everybody knew that there was something to this name and to this gospel and to his church. Verse 18, And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had believed magic arts bought their books, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So here's what's happening. The name of Jesus is being extolled in this secular city. So much so that everyone's hearing about him. People are coming to faith in the droves. And some of the people who are coming to faith in Jesus used to have a life of practicing sorcery and witchcraft and being a part of the occult. And here's what they do. Ephesus was this big time magic place. And these people bring their books, their incantations, their spells, things that would have been worth a pretty coin in Ephesus. But now, as a sign that they no longer are part of that world or those realm or that power, they've now tapped into Jesus' power. They belong to Jesus as a sign that their lives are completely set apart and different. They bring all their books, and they have a huge bonfire in the middle of the city. And the text tells us that when they counted up the value of these books, it was about 50,000 pieces of silver. Commentators still sort of are trying to figure out exactly how much that is. Some estimate if an average person was a day laborer, it would have took them 137 years of working every day, nine to five, five days a week, 137 years to come up with 50,000 silver coins. Some estimate that it's probably close to about $6 million. Now, whatever the number is, the point in the text is this is not chump change. These people had so radically believed in Jesus that they were willing to burn $6 million worth of stuff because Jesus had now become more valuable. And he was priceless to them. And they would trade it all to have more of Jesus. That's what's happening in the city. I won't read more, but in verse 23 to the end, in verse 41, what you find out is that this gospel gets such traction and makes such waves in this city where you would have least expect it, that eventually, as it always does, wherever Paul goes, a riot breaks out. And the reason a riot breaks out is if you read the story in verses 23 and following, what happens is some of the idol makers in the city who were making a pretty coin on the idolatry of all the people, are now starting to lose their business because these folks are becoming Christians. In fact, one of them, a silversmith named Demetrius, says, listen, 
All the people used to come to us because they needed idols made and they worshiped these idols. But now because of Paul and his gospel and this church, many of them are turning away from the idols made with hands and worshiping Jesus and we are losing business. Think of that. Think of the gospel taking root in a city in such dramatic, visible, tangible ways that it has economic impact even on the city. Right? Imagine in our own city if men were set free from the idols of lust and pleasure and comfort in such dramatic ways that in South Philly they had to close down the strip clubs. And imagine what you would hear if people were losing coin because of the impact the gospel was making in a city. So much so that these businessmen form a riot to erupt in the middle of the city because of what Paul's gospel and the work of his church plant was doing in that city. Now, here's what I want you to hear. The gospel is advancing with such power, impacting the city in such tangible ways, that at the very least, what you've got to notice is, do you see how Paul's gospel did not fit in the four walls of Tyrannus Hall? He was there two years plus, preaching daily, And yet that gospel could not be contained within the four walls of Tyrannus Hall. That gospel leapt outside the building through the people who went outside the building and impacted every part of the city. So that through the advance of the gospel, through these men and women who had heard Paul reason with them in the hall, as they went out, the power and name of Jesus was known in every part of that area. Secular people and religious people, moral people, immoral people, every kind of people heard about Jesus as the gospel leapt the walls of Tyrannus Hall and went into the city. If you read Acts 19, at very minimum, one of the questions you've got to ask your soul is, are we desperate to see the gospel do that now in our city? Do we have any thought or are we content for the gospel to be well-contained, quiet, and neat here. I can tell you Paul would have had no thought of reasoning Sunday after Sunday and seeing the gospel take root here and have no impact there. But Paul's gospel broke through the walls and there was demonstration of the Spirit's power and the name of Jesus and the advance of the gospel all throughout the city of Ephesus. And I want to say we're, we're taking baby steps. Part of what we're doing in our GCMs and our smaller communities is this passionate desire that the gospel wouldn't be in our neat, nice, comfortable homes, but engaging the very neighborhoods where we live. All, all this to say, when you get to the a- end of Acts 19, there's no question that God did something amazing in the city of Ephesus. Something unique, something remarkable. In fact, out of all the churches Paul has planted, this might have been the best one ever. So much so that you can imagine that when he's getting ready to leave this church, not only is it emotional for him, you can imagine he holds this church very close to his heart and he's got some strong words for the people who he's going to entrust this church to. In fact, when you turn a page and you get to Acts 20, you find this scene where Paul calls together all the elders of the church planted Ephesus. So he calls all the pastors of Ephesus, 
And he says to them, listen, I'm going. It's this very moving scene. He, in fact, says to them, I'm never going to see your face again. You're never going to see mine. So much so that by the end of that conversation, they all just fall on his neck and they kiss him and they weep because this pastor who had been with them for three and a half years is now moving on to do other work for the Lord. And you can imagine how stirring and emotional that scene was. And he calls these elders together and he reminds them, listen, you know how I've worked with you for three years. You know how I've toiled. You know the gospel. I've gone from house to house in this city speaking to everybody about Jesus. And then he gives them this sort of prophetic warning. Hear it in verses 28 and following. It says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Right? He calls these pastors together and he says, Listen, pay careful attention. Watch, Jesus, his spirit, made you pastors here. He bought this flock, these sheep, with his blood. You pay careful attention. And then he says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert Remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Here's what he's saying. He gathers these elders of this beloved church of his where he had seen the gospel do so much in that city. And he says to them, you be careful. You pay close attention. You watch Keep watch, be diligent, be alert. Wolves are coming. He says, wolves are coming. And, and he says, they're coming from among your own selves. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. So what that means is it's not coming from outside. It's not liberals out there who are coming in to spoil the church plant. It's not those godless sinners that are coming in and are going to spoil everything. It's people sitting next to you. People who look like sheep, who are truly wolves, who will come and they will not spare the flock. They will devour everything. They will destroy everything. You keep watch. I'm leaving. Wolves are coming. He leaves. You fast forward 10 years. And now it's 65 AD. And the church plant at Ephesus is a mess. Everything that could possibly go wrong went wrong. Wolves have come and devoured this place. If it were a building, there would be nothing but wreckage and rubble and ruin and damage everywhere. Everything that could go wrong went wrong in the church plant at Ephesus. In fact, if you read through the letter of 1 Timothy as just a broad overview, you get a sense of the decay, of the damage done to this place. In chapter 1, you find out, and throughout the rest of the letter, you find out that bad leaders have come in. And they're standing in the pulpit, and they're speaking, and their only purpose is not because they know Jesus or love Jesus, it's because this whole thing has become a way of power, of fame, of personal gain for them. No thought for Christ or for his gospel. Chapter 2, you get there and you find this once city-impacting, Jesus-loving, sinner-saving church 
now has no thought for the city around them whatsoever. Nobody's praying for anyone. Nobody's praying for anyone outside the walls. It's us four and no more. God, bless me. Bless my dad. Bless my mom. Bless us, Lord. And nobody has any thought for the city around them. They had seen the gospel go forth in the city. And now these four walls contain the gospel for them. No prayers for anyone else. Chapter 2, you find out that worship is a mess. So you have ungodly women who are clutching for power. We're seeing the church sort of as a runway for them to flaunt themselves and parade themselves, hoping to gain and garner attention. You have ungodly men who are raising their hands, not in prayer, but in fists, ready to fight one another in the service. Every relationship in the church is broken and is a mess. Chapter 3, you find there are no godly leaders anywhere to call, no godly elders to lead, no godly deacons to serve. There's nobody following Jesus hard in this church. Chapter 4, you find that legalism has run everywhere. The gospel has been forgotten, and now you're holy based on what you do and what you don't do. And everyone's trying to outperform the other by taking some things or keeping away from some things, and everyone's measuring their relationship with God by their performance. The gospel has gone somewhere back into the background. Chapter 4, you find that not only has this, this bad theology spread everywhere, chapter 5, you find gossip is now everywhere. And so people are gossiping about one another. Women are going from house to house, spreading business about everyone as much as they can. And relationships between parents and children, children and aging parents, men and women, old and young, every kind of relationship and category of relationship is in a mess. Chapter 6, from the pulpit, the speakers are speaking so that they can line their pockets. Greed is motivating their ministry. And the problem with money is not just from the front. Chapter 6, you find it's in the pews. These people are rich beyond measure, and yet they believe that all this money has been given for them, for their comfort, for their good. There's not a thought of generosity anywhere in this church. And that's just a flyby. You get a sense of the problems that had begun to plague this church. And listen, it's not hard for us to imagine because we're not strangers in our own day to bad churches or the damage that can be caused by churches that stray from the gospel. As I mentioned before, many of you know, either are or certainly know within your circles of friends, folks that want nothing to do with Jesus or his church because of bad churches. Many of you know what it's like to be a part of a church or have seen churches that drift from the gospel so far that you let petty, stupid things become the focus of the church. Jesus, God in the flesh, come down, died, risen again, glorious salvation, forgiveness, hope eternal. Nobody in the church is talking about that because everyone's fighting about the color of the carpet. And you see it happen. You take stupid things and elevate them up and you take the primary thing and you throw it somewhere away. It happens all the time. And all of this brings this horrible witness for Jesus. Imagine the city of Ephesus 10 years later looking at that church. They represent Jesus, then I want nothing to do with that. This once city-saving, gospel-advancing church is now a joke just a decade later. A joke for all the people in the city who are watching. And, and great dishonor 
is brought to the name of Jesus. Now listen. If you're a part of Seven Mile Road, there might be a temptation in your heart even now to go, thank God that's not us. We're about the gospel. We're about community. We're about mission. We're keeping things that are primary, primary. Thank God that's not us. Would you let this sober us for a second? If the Apostle Paul, not church planter Ajay or a team of folks, if the Apostle Paul planted what was perhaps his best church and in 10 years the thing was a mess, how humble ought we be? What should we take for granted? How much do we need this letter? Shouldn't we see that it's in Jesus' mercy that he gave us 1 Timothy so that we would not walk down some of those same trails? If the church Paul planted in 10 years had drifted so far from the gospel and brought such dishonor and disgrace to Jesus, how humble ought we be? How much should we beg Jesus, please save us? Save us from the errors that we have right now. Save us from the errors that we could walk into. Save us from becoming a mess. But there is hope. There always is in Jesus. Because the reason you have 1 Timothy in your Bible is because Jesus has always been in the business of redeeming mess. That's what he's done in some of our lives. If you want to know what Christians are, come hear our story. And you'll hear the story of how my life was a mess and Jesus came in and he brought beauty out of this mess. And that's what he intends to do in the church plant at Ephesus. And so to that end, Paul sends Timothy so that Timothy might get in there and repair the damage, restore the beauty, and make this once again a healthy church. Now, I'll say two more things and then I'll be done. I'm not going to say much about Timothy because over the next few months, you'll have plenty of opportunities to meet him. But let me just introduce him to you by saying this. In, In the scriptures, no one is a partner to Paul more than Timothy. And and Timothy is a guy that I can almost promise you you'd like. In fact, I, I, I feel in some ways you could probably relate to Timothy. Right? There's a lot about Timothy that you could probably relate to. It, when, when you read about Paul in the Bible, you picture sort of this incredible Hulk-like man. He's fearless, he's courageous, he's bold, he knows what to do, he's a decision maker, he's a leader, he's type A, he's perfect. And in fact, if anybody was to be sent to a church that was in such a mess like Ephesus, you'd send Paul. There's only one problem. He sent Timothy, and Timothy is nothing like Paul. Where, Tim, where Paul is bold, Timothy's afraid and, and lacks boldness and is timid. Where Paul is sure, he's unsure. Where Paul knows exactly what to do, he's constantly needing encouragement. Timothy is this timid, weak, young pastor, probably in his 30s, overwhelmed by this call that Jesus has given to him, a bit immature, not sure how to relate to the folks that are older to him. He's inexperienced. He's got a weak stomach, not just character, literally a weak stomach. He's sick all the time. Paul tells him to drink wine so that he can 
get rid of that ulcer or whatever it is that's ailing him. I mean, he is just this fragile, weak man, right? I, I can certainly relate to Timothy. In fact, when we were naming Micah, we gave him the middle name Timothy because I found there was so much about this young pastor that, that I could relate to and so much beauty in the story that God could use someone like Timothy in a church like Ephesus. And I, I'd imagine if you're ever in a place where you feel overwhelmed by what God's called you to do, you could in many ways relate to Timothy. And imagine Timothy, what you get the sense of as you read through Ephesians, uh, at, at read through 1 Timothy, is that if, if Timothy could, he would take the first train out of that city. If, if he could bail, he would, which is why in chapter 1, one of the first things Paul says is, Timothy, remain at Ephesus. Stay. I know you want to book that train. I know you want to pack your bags. Unpack them. Remain at Ephesus. And the last thing I want to say is this. If you are timid Timothy, yellow-bellied, unsure, weak, afraid, and you've been thrown into the worst assignment you could possibly imagine, imagine what an encouragement it would have been when you went to your mailbox and you found this letter from Paul. And imagine you heard these words as you start the letter. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're Timothy and you're in the midst of this war, bullets are flying past you, you want to get out of Dodge as soon as you can. Imagine what it would have done to your soul when you went to the mailbox and you picked up this letter and you read those words. When you were reminded, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. This is apostolic authority. This is not just I was sent on a mission. This is Jesus showed up and commissioned Paul. Paul sent me. Paul sent me by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? What confidence that would have put in him. I'm not here by accident. Jesus sent me here. Right? L last week we laid hands and called Binu. Now, that was beautiful. It was wonderful. And as best as we know, that was from the Lord. But with Paul, it was better, it was unique, it was different. You didn't have a church laying hands and calling Paul. You had Jesus himself show up and say, you're going to be my apostle. And so imagine what it did for Timothy to be reminded, I've been sent here by Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God and Jesus Christ, our Savior. And then imagine even more encouragement to your heart when you heard, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. What would that have done to Timothy? Now, you don't perhaps know his story, but I want you to hear this. Timothy had no dad as a believer. Timothy's mom was a believer. His grandma was a believer, but his dad wasn't. And so spiritually speaking, he had no father, no father figure in his life. And imagine what it would have done to his soul to hear Paul say to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Timothy, you're not illegitimate. You are my child in the faith. And then perhaps best of all, if he's tempted to run, if he's tempted to get out of here, to hear then grace, mercy, and peace. 
right? Is there anything more that could have held Timothy's heart than to hear grace? The same grace that saved me is going to sustain me day after day. The same mercy that visited me when I was a wretched soul needing help is going to come and give me help. The same peace that united my heart with God in the midst of all this chaos is now going to bring me peace. Grace, mercy, and peace from Christ Jesus our Lord. And with that, the letter kicks off. And from that moment on, Paul charges Timothy to repair the damage, restore beauty, and see once again that this becomes a healthy church. And that's where we'll pick up next week. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, as we reflect now on your word, let your spirit himself interact with us, pierce us, ask questions of us. Let the Spirit ask us even now if we are content to see the gospel in these four walls of our church, building, or home, or if we are desperate to see the gospel make traction, take root, advance, and flourish in our city. Let the Spirit ask us now if we are phonies running around speaking the name of Jesus that others speak of, if we will be found not by demons but in the last day to be heard from you, I never knew you. Who are you? Or if we are known principally and supremely by you, let the Spirit ask us and show us, even in our circumstances and situations where we feel like we want to run from that which you've called us to, remind us that there is grace and mercy, and peace from the Lord. And most of all, as a church this morning, we would ask you, with great humility, keep us, O Lord, from error, and from walking down trails that would bring your gospel to disgrace. Let your gospel never be pushed to the side, but always be held at center. And may, we, may the wisdom and words of First Timothy over these next few months ensure that by your grace, we are a Jesus-honoring, sinner-saving, city-impacting, God-glorifying, healthy church. Hear our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.